Yeah, we're in Isaiah chapter 6 today, and this is the last message in the random scripture series that we did throughout the summer, and actually it was supposed to end last week, but Irene showed up, and uh, when uh, our friend Irene showed up, many of you didn't, and understandably so, some of you did, and we had a good Sunday anyway, we had fun, kind of did like a more of a family sharing service and that type of thing, it was cool, but uh, I we held off on this message because uh, this was the last message. You know, th- these messages were kind of random, random scriptures that came from like a, a reading plan. And we just felt like they were, you know, taking these random poles, different places from the scripture. And it was important for us to hear from these different spaces. And so we wanted to wait a week to finish it up until uh, everyone was here. It's still a holiday weekend, so we're a little thin, but um, but I'm happy that we're uh, a little bit bigger of a crowd today to be able to go through this passage together. So we're in Isaiah chapter 6. And, um, you know, it's interesting. This passage is actually uh, about the call of Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet in the Old Testament, and this is God calling him to ministry. And it's chapter 6. Now, if you have a, a book that's named after a guy, and, you know, he's a prophet, and it's about him and his prophecies, if, the, if it's not till chapter 6 that it even gets into his calling into ministry, then what's chapters one through five about? You know what I mean? Like you would think that the calling would be the first thing of the prophet uh, in the book, but it's not. Actually, the first five books, it's not like life before the calling. It's nothing like that. As a matter of fact, it already just jumps right in and starts to give the prophecies of Isaiah in the first five chapters. And I think there's a reason for that. You know, this isn't a biography. This book isn't a biography. It's a book of prophecy. Isaiah's life, it's really important. I mean, I, I, Isaiah's life, when his calling starts and when he's born and when he dies, that may be all important to the people who love him, but that's not what's important when it comes to the scriptures. What's important is what it is that God wanted to do through Isaiah's life. And so whether he was called or not or how that fits into the canon, the fact that that's all the way back in chapter 6, hey, whatever works for God to communicate his message, this story isn't actually about Isaiah. This story's about God and his people. And it's very appropriate because that's actually what God's trying to teach Isaiah in the middle of this calling. He's trying to show him, hey, if you're going to be my prophet, we got to get some things cleared up here. You know, that life isn't about Isaiah. It doesn't work if life's about Isaiah. It has to be about me, about God. And uh, once it's there, then God can do what it is that he wants. And so uh, we're in chapter 6, and this is Isaiah's calling. And it's wrapped in the middle of God's messages to Israel and uh, ultimately his messages to us. And so we're going to just go down, instead of reading the whole passage um, on the front end, we're going to just walk down through it all the way through this, the morning. We're just going to be walking down through the passage, okay? So I'm going to start in, in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, in the year that King Uzziah died, who's King Uzziah? King Uzziah is a king in Judah. Now Judah and Israel have been smith, s- split. It used to be one uh, united nation. Now they're split. And the, and the uh, Israel is up in the north. And they have turned terribly away from God. Right off the bat, the, the kings start turning from God, doing evil. They're going to go into exile. They're going to be taken over by uh, nations surrounding them. But Judah has kind of, they're on a little bit of a roller coaster. They're kings and they're leaders. Sometimes they submit to God and do what God wants and has the kingdom honor him. Other times they don't and they go on this roller coaster. Uzziah comes out of the gate as a great king. 
uh, as soon as he's coronated as king, he really brings the country into submission to God's law. They honor him. They glorify him. The country thrives under him. All of his military ventures are blessed by God. The kingdom expands. Everything's going well. There's only one problem. And the problem is, is often the problem with success. It got to his head. And Uzziah got arrogant. And he got so arrogant, he got this big head that he thought he could do whatever he wanted. And he, he, he you know, uh, he was, he lost his grounding. You know how some people, they just, if they get really successful, they can kind of lose where they came from, you know? And um, that's what happened to Uzziah. So much so that he lost the foundation in the scriptures. He decided one day that he could go into the temple and he could offer sacrifices to God in the temple. This is completely and entirely unbiblical. It was very clear, the, the Old Testament law lays out very clearly who can do what in the temple, and it was the priest's job. But Uzziah, has, he's really honored God. He's been successful in everything he's done, but he's kind of let it get to his head, and now he thinks that he's good enough that he can walk into the temple and offer these sacrifices. So he goes into the temple to offer the sacrifices. The priests all show up in a big group, and, and, and they say, hey, Uzziah, don't do this. Like, don't do it. Please, don't do it. And, I, you know, basically, in our terms, Isaiah would be like, man, I thought you knew. You see who I am? I thought you knew. You know, I'm Uzziah, you know? Check me out. And I can do this. Have you seen what I did with this country? Have you? And that's where he's at. You know, he just got arrogant. And he steps into the temple, and when he says, no, I'm going to do this, all of a sudden, on the spot, he gets struck with leprosy. Right there in the temple, as they're talking, he gets leprosy on his skin. And game over, game, set, match, argument over. He puts everything down and he leaves and he goes into isolation and he's never seen again by his people. He's in isolation until the day he dies. You see, Uzziah got a little bit big and it wasn't about God anymore. It was about Uzziah. You know, it was like God was really blessing him as he was honoring God. But once he got arrogant, life became about him. All of a sudden, it didn't fit anymore. It didn't work. God wasn't going to be honored, so God had to change how things worked. And God will be honored one way or the other, you know. And uh, so Uzziah dies. Now, you can imagine that for uh, Israel, for Judah, this had been incredibly disheartening. I mean, imagine just like, yeah, there's all the struggle. The kingdom's divided. Up north has fallen apart. They're disintegrating. We've had the roller coaster ride. And then you have this wonderful king who's innovative, who's powerful, who's godly, who has everything going on, who instills a lot of hope in you. You know, so you're like thinking like, this is great. Things are going well. But then when it lets it, he lets it go to his head, and then ultimately when God strikes him with leprosy, and then ultimately he's dying or he has died. It's in the year that he died that uh, you can imagine, it just pulls the rug out from underneath of Judah. You know, the hopelessness after having your hopes built that way. Now all of a sudden it's like, ah, oh, have you ever had one of those moments where it seemed like things were going so well and you were making progress and then all of a sudden something happens and it just takes the rug out from it. You're like, are you kidding me? Like, I thought we were getting there, you know? And this was like, it would have been really disheartening. It would have been disheartening for no one more than the prophets, I mean, prophets, this is what they do, you know? They see the problem and they know where it's going to, if we do this, I know what's going to happen after this. And here's Isaiah, this up-and-coming prophet, and he sees how Uzziah has turned, and now he sees the writing on the wall. He knows what's going to happen next. He knows it's going to fall apart. And you can just imagine that his heart's sinking in this moment. In the year that King Uzziah died. That's the context. It's important to know all of that, to know what's about to happen. Okay, so in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now this word Lord here, 
uh, is not uh, Yahweh. The only way you know the difference, the, the word Lord is used both to refer to two words, Adonai and Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God. That's if you're actually talking about him personally, that's Yahweh, the, the true God. And then there's Adonai, Lord, which just means like king or ruler, something like that. And if the O, R, and D in Lord are lowercase, see how they're lowercase, but see how down here they're all uppercase? That's Yahweh. That means Jehovah or Yahweh, but we don't actually write Jehovah and Yahweh in the scripture. We just write uppercase of Lord because it's a sacred name. But up there in the top right corner, Lord, when it's all lowercase, that means Adonai. That just means leader or ruler. So what it says is, is he says, uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, I looked up and I saw, I looked and saw the Lord, saw a king, saw a ruler seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. So here it is. The, te- the, the king who had been exalted got torn down. Uzziah came down. But now, in a vision, he sees another king. And this king is high and exalted. This king's not brought low. He's not a broken king. He's not, he's not a messed up king. This king is high and exalted. And the train of his robe fills the temple. Now, what's the train? The train is like if you have a robe and it, it goes in the back. When do we see trains now? At weddings, right. I, as I was, I was kind of talking through this passage a little bit with Jen. Jen and I were talking about it. And she's like, oh, yeah, that's like when they were doing the wedding for uh, Princess Kate. They were talking all about whether her train was going to be as long as Princess Diana's train. Because apparently Princess Diana had a 20-some foot train or something. And... Kate's was much more humble, apparently. It was, you know, like only nine foot or something. And I, I, I was thinking about it, and I was laughing because, you know, I remember Jen had like a train on her dress when we got married, and I remember getting into the car afterward, and there was like dress all over the place. You know, I'm like, whoa, there's a whole lot of dress in this car, you know? And, <laughs> and the funny thing is, is the, the, for, for kings, you know, uh, there was a reason why they had this train. I mean, it was to look regal and all of that, but it was not just to look regal. Like for, it was also to communicate something. This isn't a practical piece of clothing. I don't go out in the fields and do work when I have this kind of clothing on. This is a set-apart person who's, who's to be different than everyone else, set apart, not for the common stuff. This is a regal person. The robe shows the regality. That's the, that's the whole point of, of the robe. And, and this robe... You know, he is high and exalted. He's far above all other kings. But what's more is his train that sets him apart. It's so big, it fills the entire temple. It's like a swimming pool with the train of his robe in the temple. You know, you're just swimming in the, in the train of his temple. And he's way up above it. And the robe just comes down and swirls around and fills up the entire temple. Because that's how set apart, that's how different, that's how holy this king is. That's how set apart he is. And what's more is, listen to what it fills up. It doesn't fill up his palace. The train of his robe doesn't fill up the palace. The train of his robe fills up the what? The temple. You remember why Uzziah got struck with leprosy? Because he went into the temple. He wasn't even allowed to offer the sacrifices in the temple. But this, this king sets up his throne in the temple. There is a seat in the temple. It's right on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It's called the Mercy Seat. And there's where the presence of God rests. And here, in this temple, there is a throne. You see, this king not only is allowed to go into the temple, this king sets up his palace in the temple. He belongs in the temple. This is his house. This is where his throne goes. He's actually worshipped. This isn't just any king. This is a God king. 
This is an incredibly heartening thought on one level when, when Uzziah dies and you see the fall, the rise and fall of a king and it tears the hope out of people. And we say, what's going on? In the middle of that, to all of a sudden see this high and exalted king with all of his splendor and, and with all of his set-apart holiness. That, you know, this king's not going to be torn down. This is the mighty king. And there's a real sense of hope in that. Listen as the description goes on even further. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they cover their faces, and with two they cover their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. That's a wild scene, isn't it? What are these seraphs? What are they? Angels. They're angelic beings. Now, the scriptures talk about different kinds of angels. How do we know they're angels? Well, I mean, they have wings, right? I mean, you know, so they, they have wings. And seraphs means they're, they're people of fire. Like, they're fire beings. They're on fire. They're made of fire. They have six wings. They have feet and they have hands. We see that in the passage as well. So they're like, they have normal bodies except they're on fire and they have six wings coming out of them. And they're, they're such big, gigantic, powerful beings that when they speak, the doorposts actually shake in this mighty temple. I mean, these are fearsome characters. You know, these are huge, strong, all striking characters. You know, I've found this trend that uh, as I've been in ministry um, for a few years now, um, that oftentimes people who have a lot of reason to put confidence in the flesh, you know, uh, uh, people who are very confident, people who have a lot of success and a lot going on for them, it's really hard for them to be people of prayer and worship. That's, I, it's just a trend. It's not always true, but it's a trend that I've seen that people who, who really, it works for them in the world with people, you know, they're popular or they're beautiful or they're strong or they're successful, whatever. It's really hard for them to be in a humble spot where they feel the need for prayer and for worship because in their life, they got it working for them, you know? And, and lots of times prayer, people who are broken find it a whole lot easier to pray a whole lot easier to worship God and, and have reckless abandon in their worship of God. I love in this passage that these seraphs, I believe when you, listen, when you listen to the description of these seraphs compared to other angels, these look like the creme de la creme of the angels. I mean, honestly, these are like when these guys speak, the whole place shakes. They don't have just two wings. They have six wings. Have you ever seen that? There's like a Dairy Queen commercial. That, uh, those like funny Dairy Queen commercials, they're like, we don't just have rainbows, we have rainbows on fire. You know, and uh, they, 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 uh, this is like, this isn't just an angel, this is an angel with six wings that's on fire. You know, come on. Like these are unbelievable creatures. And what's amazing is these most amazing creatures are dedicated to one purpose, flying around the throne of God, worshiping him. So often we kind of, we give to God in worship. It's like, yeah, we give him kind of what's left over of our emotions, you know? Or like we come and pray to him if we're in a place of need. But this is like perhaps the greatest of all create, created beings, you know? Sitting here giving themselves to worship God. Worship and prayer, it's not for pansies, you know? It's really not. It's not for the leftovers. This is like, this is what God God Almighty deserves. It's the best of what we have should go to praising 
and praying to God. What greater purpose is there? You know, and so, so here they are. And what's amazing is I love the description with these six wings. It says, with two wings, they cover their faces. Why do they cover their faces? Well, it's, there's, a, there's a respect thing. Hey, you know, there's something special about when you lock eyes with someone. You know, there's something that happens between the eyes when, when you make eye contact with people. And if there's someone who you really fear and you come around them, what do you do? You know, you do it. Like I've seen, you know how like when the kids get in trouble and they come around you, you know, like head goes down. There's a fearful thing. You don't, and there's a thing with these guys where they're in the presence of, of God. You know, they're in the presence of the God King. And they're just like, there is no way that I want to see that. I don't want to look up there. You know, he's too high and exalted. And they cover their faces. It says with their other two wings, they cover their feet. Why do they cover their feet? Because feet are nasty. That's why. <laughs> His feet are gross. Honestly, like, um, you know, in some cultures even today, it's a real sign of disrespect to show the bottom of your feet to people. That's like a sign of disrespect in some cultures. Um, even here in America, without that being a big, like, disrespect thing, it's still nasty. Like, if, if I'm, like, you know, hanging out with my kids, sitting on the couch, I'm reading them a book, if they, you know, reach over and grab my face and pull it with their hand and pull my face over, that's all fine and good. But if all of a sudden they lean back and put their foot up on my face, I'm like, get your, what are you doing? Put your foot off my face. That's nasty, you know? Like, <laughs> you don't put your foot on my face. That's gross. Like, you know, there's something about feet, you know? They're dirty like that. And like, aren't they? I mean, there's something nasty. It's like, anyway, I don't, I don't know what to say about it, but that's what it is. And this is the humble part of a person. And so these angels, it's not like they're dirty beings. I mean, they're angels on fire. It's hygienic. They're on fire. It's purified. You know, like everything about them is, is like, it's great. But they still, in the presence of God, cover their feet because of the humility. They don't want the, the almighty God to see this humble part of them. They have six wings. Notice two of their wings cover their face, two cover their feet. That's two-thirds of their wings. Four out of six, two-thirds of their wings are used for one purpose, to show submission to God. He is so high and so mighty that two-thirds of their resources they use just simply to submit to God. It says with their other two wings, they fly. They do whatever God wants with the one-third. It takes one-third of their resources to do what God wants, but it takes two-thirds of their resources just to get submitted enough to God to get to the place where they can begin to do what God wants. We can't underestimate how much it takes to truly be submitted to God, to truly be submitted to God. We're not a people who easily submit ourselves to God. We kind of do our own thing, like Uzziah or like as we'll see, Isaiah. So here they are, and, and what's amazing, again, is these great beings just yelling to one another. They don't even talk to God. They just yell to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I mean, think about, like, the coolest people you know, you know? Just the, the people who, like, seem to have it all together. Imagine them, like, at a workplace or in a church or in a parking lot or in a field, just yelling across the field to each other, holy, holy is God. You know, he's so holy. Have you seen how good he is? Just being like little kids, like yelling to each other. Have you seen how amazing God is? Like that'd be bizarre in our culture to see people who are that put together, just all of a sudden yelling to each other how amazing God is. And yet these beings far exceed anything we've known of, of put together, you know? And they scream to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his character, full of his glory. 
It's, amazing. it's an amazing sight, an amazing picture. Um, so this is, again, while Uzziah is, is dying or has died, here it is, this king in all his splendor. This is a reason for hope. Now, as quick as that could provide hope for us, the instant reaction right after this is, is what Isaiah's big reaction is. Okay, now listen to Isaiah's re- reaction. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now I want to stop for a second and take, this is a a little rabbit trail here. Um, If you look in the New Testament, um, there's a passage from this chapter that's quoted a bunch, and and we'll read it at the end. Um, And when and when John quotes that passage, he says that Isaiah knew that when he was quoting this passage, that Isaiah was, or that John says that when Isaiah quoted from this passage, when he spoke this passage, he knew he was talking about Jesus. And he says the reason that he knew it was about Jesus, that this passage was actually about Jesus, is because he saw Jesus. Now, there's a reason that's important. You know, we might say, uh, of course, duh, it's Jesus. But there's a whole host of people who don't believe that Jesus and the Father are the same. They don't believe in the triune God. They don't believe in the Trinity. And there's a big heresy about not believing in the Trinity. But you see this, if you can flip back to the others. uh, Wait, no, here it is. Either way, it's uh, in verse 5 there. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord. Remember that word there with all uppercase? Remember what that means? That means Jehovah. It means Yahweh. That's Father God, the one and only God. And when, and when you go to the New Testament and John refers back to this passage, he says that Isaiah was looking at Jesus. And the name right there is Yahweh. So Jesus is being called Yahweh in this passage. Scripture clearly, I mean, it's just one example, but over and over again, teaches in the Trinity. And that's one of the examples about it, just a heads up. So anyway, here's what happens. Isaiah sees all of this, and you can imagine the intimidation of of what's going on. Woe to me. Some of your passages don't say, for I am ruined. They might say, for I am undone. Um, Or it might, you know, the common phrase now would be, I'm done. You know, he'd say, all right, I'm done. You know, this is it, I'm done. And uh, see, he's brought into the reality of God's presence. Something happens when we come into the presence of God. See, for many of us, we have to get to a pretty difficult or desperate spot in our life until we're ready to, to truly reach out to God. You know how that happens? We talk about sometimes somebody has to hit rock bottom before they really reach out and find God. This is a different principle that's even more true. And this is the principle. If you do find God, that's when we find out who we really are. When you come into the presence of God, you find out who you really are. Now, let me give you an example of how this works. Have you, ever, um, have you ever been watching something or looking at something online, watching a movie that's like ethically, morally, it's like, it's okay. You know, it's not, it's, it's like borderline, you know, and you've been watching, you're like, I don't know if I should really be watching this. This is kind of, this is kind of trashy or whatever, but you've kind of like, you know, for yourself, you've justified it. And then all of a sudden, someone comes walking in the room. And, you know, especially if it's like a parent or a grandparent or something, or like someone you really respect comes walking in the room and you're like, 
oh boy, now I feel uncomfortable. You know what I mean? All of a sudden, accountability is there. The, <laughs> the other day, I, I have to be on this special diet right now because of some health issues I have going on. And one of the things I can't eat is my favorite food in the entire universe, which is peanut butter. And I can't eat peanut butter right now. And so we got some almond butter. Jen got me this little thing of almond butter because I can eat that. And it's a tiny little thing. It was crazy expensive for this t- tiny little thing. So she's like, use it sparingly. Well, then we also went to Costco. And at Costco, they had this big thing of almond butter that was like uh, all natural almond butter that I was like, I wonder if this is going to taste better or worse. And so that's sitting on the counter and we, I already have this other one open, right? So I already have the other one open. So obviously I should finish the other one before I open this one. But, you know, I, w- I was really curious about what it tasted like and Jen wasn't around. So I'm like looking and I'm going to eat and I, I, I'm like, ah, uh, yeah, I, I know it would probably make more sense to just wait and eat that, but <laughs> You know, who cares? So I go over and I open it up and I spread it out on a piece of bread and I'm about to eat it. And wouldn't you know, the door opens and Jen comes walking in. And I'm just like, yeah, I don't know why I opened the second one. That was kind of stupid, wasn't it? You know, there's like this, there's this thing that happens that we so easily deceive ourselves. And it's the same thing. I mean, like, I remember, like, we'd go camping when I was in Scouts. We'd go, like, on a week-long camping trip, you know, and we'd come back and nobody showered all week, you know. We stank, you know, and, uh, but everybody, nobody really noticed it because we all stank, you know, and then you come back and mom's there and mom's like, ah, like get a shower. Are you kidding me? You know, like, and, and sometimes we come to terms, we just get used to our own filth. And until there's a level of accountability, until we step into the presence of holiness, we don't recognize just how much messed up stuff there is in our life. And what happens is, is Isaiah's a prophet here, and he can look around at King Uzziah and describe his problems, and he can look over here and see these problems. But when he comes in the presence of God, he's not thinking about them. He sees himself, and he sees his sin. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. You see... We don't know. We don't know how much nastiness there is around us. It's amazing. And he says, listen to how he responds. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Why does he say unclean lips? I mean, out of all the things that he's done wrong, like, why that? You know, well, you know, A, he's a prophet, and he's supposed to be using his lips for very important purposes, and he's not. But even more than that, the lips. Remember when we did God's design, we had the big framework in here, and we did God's design for our lives, and we talk about God's design for communication. And we said that the, the, the tongue has this, the scriptures teach that the tongue is actually the rudder of the ship of our lives. And that when you speak something, it, it shapes our lives and the lives of those around us. If we just have internal struggle, it's one thing. But once it comes out of our, our mouth, it hits the real world and it starts to take effect and it shapes things. And Isaiah, looking at his life, he knows in this moment, man, I have damaged things. I have defiled things. And I, I don't know about you, but you know, if, if you talk about that level of accountability and people being able to see, like someone walking in and seeing what we're watching or whatever, think about this. Think about if my life right now, if you took the Tim Deering's life and put it on a video up here on this screen and all of you could see this morning all of the ways that I've ever talked to my spouse or ever talked to my kids or ever talked about someone else or ever, you know? Like imagine your life and if it was all put on on display, what are the ways that you wish you wouldn't have talked to your spouse the way you did? 
Or how have you talked to your kids or your parents in that tone of voice? Or what are the things you say you wish you could have gotten back? You know? How about, how about the way you've talked about that coworker when they weren't there? Or that pastor? I know you would never do that. Um, <laughs> think about it, honestly. What are the things, when you think about it and you look back, isn't it terrible? Isn't it terrible what's happened in our lives, what we've done? And, and we're told, honestly, that the scriptures say, out of the overflow of the heart pours forth speech. Whatever's inside eventually comes out. And so Isaiah knows in this moment, like he just feels dirty because his mouth has done this stuff and he feels dirty. Like he's like, ah, and he's in the presence of holiness. Now he has a theology and his theology knows that when I come into the presence of holiness, I can't exist anymore. Anyone who looks at God dies. But this isn't just theology speaking to Isaiah right now. This is instinctual. Like you get in the presence of holiness and it's like a piece of darkness that comes into the light. It knows it's gone. It knows it's done, you know? And that's what's going on. Is he's, he's a sinful man. And he says, not only am I a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips. I used to get to travel a lot. I used to travel overseas. And um, it used to be that if you go overseas and you told someone you were an American, that it was like all of a sudden you were a hero just for being American, you know? That it was like there was some, something great about that. Now, there's a lot of places in this world you would not want to say that you're American. You know what I mean? Times have changed. Who we are and who we come from, we represent that. Isaiah not only knew that he had said things he shouldn't have said, but have have you ever been in a place where you just felt out of place? You're like, I don't belong here, you know? And it's like, I don't fit, I don't belong here. And you just get that uncomfortable feeling where you're like, I gotta get out of here, you know? I don't, imagine Isaiah. He's coming from earth where everyone, everything we do and say is just tainted with selfishness and with sin and with impurity. And here he is in the presence of the almighty God with seraphs flying around, worshiping like crazy. And who is he? And these amazing beings who normally he'd be scared to death simply of these angels. But now even those guys are like humble before God and they're not even sinners. You know, and here they are, this humble before God. They're not even sinners, and I'm scared to death of them. Imagine how out of place he feels right now. That's where Isaiah's at, and he knows, I'm done. I'm ruined. It's over. Now listen, verse 6. Then one of the seraphs, one of these angels, flew to me with a live coal. Now, I don't know about you, but this in and of itself is just scary enough. One of these giant six-winged fiery beings flying at me. Like, that's a, that's a scary thing, okay? So scary enough is that we've never experienced. When just any normal messenger angel shows up to talk to people in the scriptures, they freak out. Like, they totally lose it because of how scared they are of these angels. These are big six-winged earth-shattering angels, and one of them's flying at Isaiah. Of course, he'd be scared to death. And it says, he has a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs, from the altar. I love this. this. This angel's on fire, and yet he can't reach in and grab the coal. This is a hot coal, you know? He has the tongues, and he reaches in with the tongues, and he grabs the, the coal from the altar. Now, we're in the temple. The altar is used to make sacrifice, to purify things, so people can be in the presence of God. And Isaiah needs to be purified right now. And so the, the, the angel goes over, and with tongues, he pulls out this burning hot flame, and he flies over to Isaiah. Now, I, I, just, just try to picture this for a second. 
You're scared out of your mind. And the angel is flying towards you and it has like the hottest thing you've ever seen before and he comes toward your lips with it. I mean, this is like Spanish Inquisition stuff here. You know, I mean, this is like medieval torture chamber. They're going to take the burning hot coal and they're going to put it on my lips. And, and what's amazing is, is he, never, he never squeaks about it. He never says a word. He never freaks out about the fact that there's a burning hot coal and an angel who's coming after him. You know why? This is why. A year ago, I was a little over a year ago. I, you know, uh, many of you know I blew out my shoulder. I had been having shoulder issues, and I was lifting at the gym, and I dislocated my shoulder, and it came out, and it was over on my collarbone. Okay, so I'm at, I'm at Rascals at the gym there, and I'm freaking out because my shoulder came out, and it's sitting on my collarbone, and it's jacked up like this, and I can't do anything with it. And I, I'm in a ton of pain, and I'm trying to figure out how to get this thing back in. And so I'm going to walls, and I'm like trying to hit it against walls to get it to go back in and trying to do whatever I can. And anytime I tell people that story, they're like thinking about the trying to get the arm back in, and they're like, ah! Like, and I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like the thought of slamming my shoulder back into joint was not a scary thought at all. It was the best possible thought I could think of at the time because the pain of the dislocation was nothing compared to the relief that would be there if I slammed this thing back into joint. So whatever it takes, just fix it. This is the deal. We think about pain in our lives as if it's a bad thing. We think about the difficulties in our lives like they're a bad thing, like we want to avoid them at all costs. We think about burning coals being put on our lips like we're a bad thing, like it's a bad thing. But listen to me. We know absolutely nothing about how terrible it is to be a sinner in the hands of a holy God. We don't know anymore. We forget. We're, you know, there, God hasn't walked into our room enough for us to be petrified about what's happened and, and, and what's going on in our lives. We don't know about the dirt in our lives. We don't know about holiness. We've lost sight. We don't walk in the presence of God. And because of it, we have no idea how much fear it would put into our hearts to have our dirtiness in the presence of his holiness and what that can do to a person so much so that it's almost as if Isaiah was begging for the coal, like, please do do anything to take away the dissonance, the pain of my ugliness in the presence of God, no matter how uncomfortable we've ever been in a place where we feel like we don't fit. It's nothing compared to the fear of Isaiah in the presence of this holy God. He knew himself like he had never known himself before. He knew his dirt. He knew his shame. It all flashed before him. And whatever it takes, get it away from me. Cleanse me of this dirt. Get it away from me because I'm in the presence of holiness and he knows that sin doesn't exist in the presence of holiness. Fortunately, there was a point to this coal coming. Verse 7, with it he touched my mouth and he said, see, this has touched your lips. Now listen, this is a beautiful phrase. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Isn't that awesome? Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Have you ever been like, like been in a place where you've been totally like petrified of a mistake you made and then it turns out it's not as bad as you thought? Maybe it's like you, you were, like, you were going to go, your boss calls you in and you're like, this is it. You know, here it is. And you get called in and it turns out there's just some new procedure that he's working on or she's working on. That, and, and afterwards you're like, Oh man, I thought I was, I thought that was it. Or maybe you have a dream and in the dream you made a mistake that was like a horrible, horrible mistake. 
And you're just like in so much tension. And then you wake up from the dream and you're like, oh man, I'll never ever do anything wrong again in my life. You feel such a relief. You know what I mean? There, have you ever had that kind of relief where it's like you, did, you made a major mistake and then you realize it's not as bad? Imagine this relief. There, there is no greater relief than the redemption of Jesus. Honestly. And for those of you who haven't experienced it yet, who haven't fully put your trust in Christ yet, there is nothing at all like the relief of God saying, your sins are atoned for. Your guilt is taken away. It's a different thing to trust in God than to trust in church. It's different trusting in Jesus and his shed blood on a cross. That's the altar. The altar in this story was an altar in a temple, but the altar for us is the altar of the cross where Jesus dies on a cross. And Trusting in him is much different than trusting in religious activity, than trusting in going to church. It's much different than trusting in uh, just being a part of church or, or in my goodness or good things that I've done or the way I take care of my kids. All of that is trusting in me. That's different than trusting in God. If you've never fully just given up and trusted God, today, man, I'm telling you, there is absolutely nothing in this world like the relief that comes when the burden I carry of trying to make it work, of trying to justify myself, of trying to know if I'm okay, to be able to just let it go and to say, Jesus took it on a cross and I can trust now. And he cleanses me. There's nothing like that freedom. If you haven't done that, come talk to me or Josh afterwards and let's talk about it. Man, there's nothing like it. It's the greatest thing ever. Now, what's amazing is how he doesn't fear. You know, he doesn't fear the pain of anything coming because the greater fear is of God. But then there's this big relief that comes in. Now, after all of that, I want to show you, this is what it's been. How do we say at Parker Ford Church, there's three directions we follow God. What are they? Up, in, and out. Okay, and so we, we, we go up into this, and this is what's happened with Isaiah. First, he comes in, and he sees God up there. He goes up. He's brought up in this vision, and he sees God. Now, as he goes up, and he finds God, and he sees this amazing thing, instantly what happens? Conviction. Conviction. Now, after that, he's convicted, and he has, he's going to die. Then what happens? Cleansing. God cleanses him. And there's the cleansing of God's atonement. That's in, that's internal transformation. He went up and there was conviction. He goes in and there's cleansing and God cleanses him, comes in and purifies him. Now, after all of that, for the first time, we actually hear God talk. This is awesome. So far, we've heard the seraphs talk. We've heard Isaiah talk, but we haven't heard God talk. You know why? Because it'd be pointless for God to talk before this. Because there's no way that Isaiah would understand what God's talking about until he's been convicted of his sin, until he's been purified. He can't even be in the right frame of mind to hear God talk. It's like if, if I'm a kid at school and I'm like always getting in trouble, you know, and I have like, you know, I'm shooting spitballs and passing notes and tripping and pulling ponytails and doing whatever. I don't know anything about any of that stuff. I just go. But if you, but if you're a kid like that, and then you see the principal in the hallway, and the principal says, "Hey, I want to talk to you about something," like instantly, boom. You know, like there's just heavy conviction inside. There's this guilt, and so you can't actually listen 
for what this principle is actually talking about. You're just overly concerned about how you're going to get busted, you know? And that's the thing is like when it comes to our relationship with God, we can't get to a place of ease where we can actually feel what God's about and hear him until we've let go of the ugliness and we let go of all the dirt. See, we have to first be convicted of our sin and know who we really are. Then we have to be cleansed of that sin. And once we let all of that go, we don't carry this weight. And when we don't carry the weight, then when God speaks, we don't assume the worst. You know, we can begin to listen to him with a place of ease. Not that God's ever like, you know, just colloquial where it's just easy with God, but there's this, there's this sense of respect, but it's still, now I can kind of like, what's God actually trying to do here? You know, instead of just running scared of him. And so I love how God speaks. It's awesome. He says, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Who will go? This is the calling to go out. You know, he's going up and in. This is the calling to go out. And I love that he doesn't say, Isaiah, go do this. He says, who will we send and who will go for us? And you notice the plural, who will we send, who will go for us? Again, a picture of the Godhead, the Trinity. You know, this isn't the council of him and the angels. He doesn't seek their help, you know. Like this is the Godhead, the Trinity. Say, who will we send and who will go for us? And Isaiah, at this point, he's done with his former life. Like, there's no way he wants to go back to that stuff because that's the stuff that makes him feel... He just got relieved of all of that. He doesn't want to go back to that life. He wants a new life. He wants something different. He wants to be involved in something much more holy, something that keeps him in the presence of God. And so when God's like, who will we send and who will go for us? He's looking for something to do with his life now. And it's like a little kid, like, jumping up and down, like, oh, send me, me, you know? And... So God's like, and then the response. And I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go, go. This is a special moment. This is a really, really special moment. You know, uh, there's, there's kind of hot topics that people come and talk to pastors about. One of the hot topics that people come and talk to pastors about um, is they want to find their purpose in life. They want to find their gifts or their callings or what it is they're meant to do and how they can serve and how they can find a sense of meaning and purpose. And people are at different stages of the journey when they ask those questions. Sometimes people come and they'll come to a church and they just want to plug in and do something. But if you have a conversation with them, sometimes they're at a place where they're still not quite, they haven't gone through the conviction and the cleansing yet. They feel, still feel the sense of, of need to fill up more and they feel a sense of emptiness and they want to fill it up with doing stuff. And if I just do more stuff and, 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 if, I, and if I do something that's effective and, 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 you know, is like purposeful, then I'll feel better about who I am. And for a minute we will, but in the presence of God's holiness, that doesn't actually work. You see, God can use that. He uses anything. I mean, he uses wrong motivations all the time. There's many times where we do things out of the wrong motivation. We do it for us and not for God. And he still uses it because he uses broken vessels because that's all he has to work with. That's who we are. We all are broken. We're never completely pure. But what God wants is he wants to work with people who know that they're broken, who really feel that they're broken, who aren't just trying to fill themselves up with, I'm going to do this and this so I can feel good about myself, who instead are broken and know they're sinners and they're broken before God and God forgives them and cleanses them and they're at a place of contentment and peace at that point. You know? 
where they're like, no, it's all good. And God can use me if and when he wants to use me. And I'm happy and I would love to serve him. You know, it'd be my joy. But I don't need that in order to feel okay about myself. And sometimes we don't rush here to the out. We talk about the up and the in, going up to connecting with God, going in and being transformed, and then going out and serving. Lots of times we don't rush to the out. Because if you skip over the up and in to get to the out, it gets things messed up a little bit sometimes. And if you, if you skip over the conviction and the cleansing of God and just go to the calling of God, oftentimes it's for the wrong reasons. Now, God still uses that. If you get in that and you start serving God, we don't sit on our tails and just wait. We understand that as we serve God, he also refines us. But in this case, Isaiah's in a really good spot because he's been convicted of his own humanity and of his own failures. And he's been forgiven of those and he's let it go and he's at a place of peace with God. And he has to be, and this is why. Because this calling that God has on his life, the purpose he has for his life, it is not an easy calling. It's a brutal calling. See, one of the deceptions about the purposes of our lives, if we submit ourselves to God and we go after his purposes for our lives, one of the deceptions is that that will ultimately make us feel good. And it'll be fun and comfortable and all of that. And, and I finally found my place. This is, this is my place. Now I can just have peace for my whole life. It doesn't work that way. That's like in Hollywood when it's like you, you have the big, the big war waged and the battles and all the drama and all of that. And finally the couple ends up together at the end and they love one another and then ride off happily into the sunset where we know that marriages are just easy and perfect. You know, and no, that's where the journey begins. That's where it gets tough. You know what I mean? Like up till then it was romance. Now it's like commitment, you know, and it's tough. And, and that's the hard work. And it's the same thing when it comes to God. Like there's this journey and this searching for God and everything. And it's awesome. And when we find him and he cleanses us and forgives us, and we feel our sins and he releases us. It's awesome and it's amazing. But then starts the journey with God where it's difficult where it takes work, where he calls us to do things that aren't easy, that aren't popular, that people don't like. And he calls us to be accountability with one another, which no one really likes, you know? And, and he calls us to stand our ground on things we don't want to and to give up things we don't want to. And it's not that he's trying to be rough with us. It's not he's trying to be mean with us. It's that in order to purify us, in order to get our hearts to yearn for the right things, it takes discipline. In order for him to accomplish what he needs to accomplish, it takes agents who are willing to do difficult things. You know, uh, I, and uh, Mark Elliott, after the first service, he said, yeah, that's like that old phrase that says uh, that which, uh, oh man, how's it go? That which uh, doesn't kill me makes me stronger or something like that. And he said, and that which does kill me gets me closer to God anyway, you know, <laughs> like, uh, which is pretty good. But the, you know, the, the whole idea is that there's this sense of we need, we absolutely need God to cleanse us before he moves us forward. And, and, and we yearn for God's cleansing. And we yearn, and once he's got us there, once we've let go of our own life, once the timeline, once it can get to Isaiah chapter six before we worry about our calling because the message beforehand is bigger, you know, then we're not gonna be like Isaiah and get too big for our britches, you know? And we're not gonna be like Uzziah, the king, who's too big for his britches. Now listen, this is why it's such a big deal. I'm gonna read the rest of the passage now and you're gonna hear what the calling is and we're gonna end on this one. This is a, a crazy calling. He said, go and tell this people. So this is what Isaiah's message is supposed to be. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused and make their ears dull. And close their eyes, 
Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. What? Did God actually say that? He doesn't want their eyes to be opened or their ears to hear or their hearts to be soft because otherwise they might understand what he's talking about and be healed? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to Isaiah, but Isaiah is not about to get up at he either. In verse 11, he just says, For how long, O Lord? And God answers, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. That's our chapter for today. May God add his blessings to that chapter and to the reading of it in our, in our ears. Now listen. God actually told Isaiah that this was the message he was supposed to bring. That he was supposed to tell all these people, you're not, I'm going I'm to show you God, but you're not going to be able to see him. I'm going to tell you the truth of God, but you're not going to be able to understand it. I'm going to give you everything you need, but your hearts are going to be so hard that you won't receive it. And because of that, there's going to be consequences to the sin, and God's going to leave this land in shambles. Why would God possibly want Isaiah to do that? It's absolutely brutal. The first question, even before we ask that question, is one other question. Why would Isaiah ever want to do that? Why would Isaiah ever want to be a part of that calling? And the only way he would ever want to be a part of that calling is because he's been convicted of his sin and he's been cleansed of his arrogance. And because of that, he's let go of the identity of Isaiah and he's grabbed a hold of being submitted like angels covering their faces and covering their feet. He's covering himself from God at this point and just saying, whatever you want, I'm yours now, you know? And he's given himself to God. And now God gives him a a task that he could only do if he was in that posture of brokenness and submission before God. Now, why would God ask him to say this? And here's the reason. Because if God shows up with all of his fireworks and God puts on the display of his character, of course, everyone's going to turn. We're told that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But that's not because our hearts yearn for him. It's because once we're in the presence of holiness, we have no choice but to break before God. There's no choice. But God doesn't want us to be forced into submission to him. God loves us. And he wants us to know and to see how good he is and how good his love is for us. And he wants us to draw to him on our own will. And in order for God to build something beautiful, what he has to allow to happen is he has to allow us to see the consequences of life without him. And if every time we do something wrong, and if every time people go away from God, he just rescues them, and he does some, puts on some firework display that entertains them and gets their hearts to submit to him, that doesn't actually help us. It doesn't get us to a place of purity where we actually love God. It's just him saving us over and over again and us never growing. Listen, when I'm out in public and my kids do something they shouldn't do, and I have to rebuke them or I have to scold them or I have to discipline them. I don't know how many times, man, people look at me like I'm a, such a terrible person, you know, for like, how can you talk to, like, harsh to them? How can you discipline them? How can, you know, and listen, the consequences of me not listening and not dis- disciplining them are going to be much more painful for you <laughs> than, than me, you having to sit here in this uncomfortable moment, 
you know? We don't like discomfort in our society. We don't like it when it seems like something is harsh to something else. It just seems like if it's mean, it's wrong. If it's not nice, if it's not comfortable, it's wrong. You see, the God of the universe doesn't play ball that way because the God of the universe loves us. And even if it looks to everyone else like he's being mean or something by allowing consequences to hit us, he doesn't care what anyone else thinks. He wants to build pure hearts that love him. And the only way to do that is to allow those difficult things to take place in our life because like the burning coal that touches the mouth of Isaiah, without the difficulties in our lives, we will never be purified in our motives. We will never turn our hearts to God. We will always depend on us and never depend on God unless in fact he allows the consequences of the sin of this world to catch up with us. Unless we feel the pain and the sting and the discipline that comes from the difficult ways of us and our people then we will never be purified. And if we're not purified, our hearts won't turn to God and we won't feel the goodness that he has in store for us. So he tells them, I will not rescue you from this one. You will go away into exile with this one. You will be broken by this one. But in the end, in the end, there will be people who will say, we are sick and tired of life without God. We want good life again. We want God again. And out of their own hearts, they will yearn for God and they will seek for him. And there will be a seed of purified holiness that he will be able to build his kingdom upon. You feel that? That's what we yearn for. And so the takeaway is this. The takeaway is this. We don't know about holiness. You know? We don't know about it. We don't understand it. But we shouldn't fear pain in our lives. We should fear the lack of pain in our lives. We shouldn't fear difficulties in our lives. We should fear being in the presence of God before he's purified us. We shouldn't fear, we shouldn't fear not being able to find my niche. We should fear finding my niche before I've been cleansed and purified. We should fear what happens in our lives if we charge too far ahead without God cleansing us because we'll get taken down the track that we don't want to see where the end leads to. And so for us, it's, it's saying, God, I know there's pain and I know it's all around me and I know it comes. And so often I want to pray that you just take it away from me. But God, more than that, I want to pray this, that you would refine me with your fire. And you would cleanse me so that my heart can be pure and I can yearn for what I'm supposed to yearn for. So you can make, you can do with my life whatever it is you want to do. It's not up to me anymore because I don't care about that anymore. I care about being connected to you. That's where the goodness is. And we can trust him through that pain. That's a good kind of pain. That's a purifying kind of pain. But when we come into the presence of God, we just recognize we don't know anything about this. We don't understand this. Please change me, God. Refine me. Break me. Bring me to that place of prayer. You know, bring me to that place of praise, like the seraphs, the great seraphs who still cover themselves. Bring me to that place of humility.